0: The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We're in John chapter 5 this morning, uh, looking at uh, verse 1 to 18. And um, this is week 17 of our series in John's Gospel. We've been doing this for 17. Last week I said it was week 11, and I was wrong. Um, this is week, Last week was week 16, this week is week 17. And what we're going to notice here in John chapter 5 is that the... The, the heat of persecution is going to get turned up here in chapter 5. And it's going to stay up. Like, like prior to this, uh, there was apprehension, hesitation around who Jesus was from the religious authorities. But here, in chapter 5, things start to get a little bit more serious and Jesus' life gets, begins to be a little bit more threatened. And, and that temperature goes up and it really won't come down until his, his death on the cross. So let's pray and then we'll get into God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you for the, your word each week, Lord, because it is such a wonderful thing that you are not a God who stood away at a distance or left us to try and discover, Lord, but you are a God who made himself known. You have revealed yourself to us, Lord, in your word. And we thank you, Father, that we can open this book and find not just words about you, Lord, but your words to us. Lord, we ask, Father, that as we spend this time in your word, that your Holy Spirit, Lord, the Holy Spirit, you would reveal to us the things that we need to see, Lord, in here in your word. We thank you for... Uh, this wonderful blessing, Lord, we ask. Lord, I, I ask that you would uh, speak through me, Father. That any words that are hear that are of of mine only, Lord, and not of yours, Father, they will be quickly forgotten. And we humbly submit this time to you, Father. And thank you for your love. Thank you for your great, great love to us. Amen. Uh, something that I don't really like in life. But I have to face every now and then is the change rooms at like the shops when you go on and try and on clothes. You know, like when you go on a Kmart, you're going to try on a shirt or something. Um, the reason why I don't like it is because as you can probably tell, I'm not the kind of I'm not a guy who spends a lot of time looking in a mirror. Like as far as I'm concerned, a mirror is to make sure that there's no more toothpaste on your mouth. And that's kind of as much I mean I do have to like clip my hair a couple of times a week. And so I need like a little mirror for that. But I don't, you know, I mean, I'm not judging anybody who does spend hours and hours gazing into the mirror. Um, But like, I just don't look at mirrors that much. And so when I go into these change rooms, and uh, there's just, you know, mirrors everywhere and unflattering lighting and I'm trying on clothes that aren't particularly comfortable and don't quite fit me, it's a nightmare. Like it's, it's an absolute nightmare. It's like this, this unflattering lighting makes makes me aware that, you know, there are, Serious imperfections in my body that I wasn't aware of, and especially when it's got that angled mirror and you can kind of see yourself from behind, and you've never seen you I've never seen that part of my shoulder. Like, is that what my right shoulder looks like? I just like, what is going on here? It's you know, and then you're like, I I always come out of there just like having like trying to correct my posture because it looks so bad. I kind of walk around and came up with my shoulders back, trying to. I just it makes me very self conscious. Today's passage is a little bit like that. Because the Bible functions as a bit of a mirror, as a mirror that we are meant to look at and, and not, for our, not for our own glory, but to examine the state of our, of our own hearts. That, that we actually hold the Bible up and it do, sometimes tells us things that we don't want to hear about ourselves. We don't want to admit about ourselves. The Bible Opens up our hearts to to understand. Hey, that we need to grow. We need to we need we need to change. This passage does that. It does that. Well, it's done been doing that to me this week at least. Just to give you a bit of context, uh, Jesus has returned to Jerusalem. He's been to Jerusalem before, and he's left, and he's come back now. And uh, he's come for a particular festival. We're not told which festival it is that he's attending. In John's Gospel, Jesus attends many festivals, and normally they are named which festivals they are. Um, This one isn't, and so we can probably just safely assume that that detail is not particularly important at this point in time. But Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and he's alone this time, he's not with his disciples, and he goes to an area that has become very popular for people with all sorts of disabilities and ailments. It says that there lay there a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. When I was a kid, I had picture books of this exact scene, and it was all very sanitized. Do you, I'm not sure if you saw those pictures. Like, it looked like those ancient Greek paintings of people lounging around at a pool and eating grapes. And it looked like it was this lovely kind of, you know, people were in pain and dis- disabled, but they were by the pool. So everyone was kind of like, it was this pleasant place. But we know just from some common sense that that, was, that would not have been the case here. It wouldn't have been very likely. This was not a, a pleasant place at all. There was no disability support for people who were disabled or who had other kind of ailments. There were no full-time carers who took care of these people, who, who helped keep them clean, who who. Helped get them exercise, he got them out and about, he showed great compassion and love to, to such people. There was no service like that. This was a, a lot of people with profound disabilities in a small place. Many of them unable to hear, unable to see, unable to communicate, unable to walk or even move any of their limbs. They would have had great difficulty, many of them, taking care of themselves, keeping themselves clean. They would have found it hard to to take themselves away, to to use any kind of amenities to relieve themselves. They would have been malnourished. This would have been a sad and sorry kind of place. And the reason why it was so popular for such people is because there was a, a, a superstition about a particular, the, the healing properties of a particular pool, this pool that is mentioned there. Now, though, that's detailed in verse 4, which you might notice in most of your Bibles that verse 4 is actually missing. The reason it's missing is because scholars are virtually unanimous that verse 4 was a, a much later addition to that text. The story goes that the pool being fed by a subterranean spring would occasionally ripple. And, and they've done excavations of this area and they've discovered what they think is actually this pool. And the prevailing belief was what, that when this pool rippled, it was an angel stirring up the water. And, and the belief was that when this water was stirred up, the first person to enter that pool, to jump into that pool, would be healed. And so surrounding this pool was a whole lot of people. Everyone there was desperate to be made well. All all poised to frantically race into the pool at the first sign of movement. But there was one thing there on this particular day that was completely out of place. The king of glory was there. And it says that he came to a man who had been disabled for 38 years. I recently turned 38, and just reading that again this week just made me go, wow, that's the entire duration of my life. This man had been suffering this particular affliction. The, the Bible is unequivocally clear that people who are disabled, who are uh, broken, who are destitute in their hearts and their bodies, they have a, a very important place in God's heart. And on the one hand, that is meant to draw us into God's heart to adopt the same kind of mercy and attitude and compassion towards people with such physical disabilities. It also invites us to reflect on the state of our own hearts that without Jesus, we are all broken, destitute, and without a hope in the world. When we see Jesus go to a man like this, we've got to know that without Jesus, our hearts are worse off than this Man's body. The invitation to us is to acknowledge our brokenness, to acknowledge our deep and sincere need for Jesus. The great reformer Martin Luther said God receives none but those who are forsaken. He restores health to none but those who are sick. He gives sight to none but the blind, and life to none but the dead. He does not give saintliness to any but sinners, nor wisdom to any but fools. In short, he has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. Friends, if you think that you have to clean yourself up, if you think that you're in the only way that you can receive blessing and healing and any kind of wisdom and grace and mercy from God is if you just make yourself just a little bit better and then you'll make yourself a little bit more appealing to God, you've got it all backwards. We've got to come to Him knowing that we are in our hearts, our, our entire lives are in a sorry state until we have Christ. The, the prevailing belief in our world is that if you search deep down, and, deep down inside of your hearts, you'll find something fantastic and all you've got to do is articulate that and express that and then you'll be happy. And the Bible says, no, that's not true. Our, our hearts need mending. We are in disgrace. We need the grace of Jesus Christ. This is the invitation of this passage. To acknowledge our complete and utter brokenness and hopelessness without Jesus. In verse 6, it says that when, when Jesus saw him lying there and he realized that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Now, that's a strange question, isn't it? Like, surely there's only one answer to that question. Like, like I, I feel like if I ask that question, the guy might turn around and smack me in the face because that, that's a pretty, like, do you, of course he wants to be made well. Have you ever been asked a question where there's actually, you know, there's actually a a second layer of meaning behind that question. Like sometimes Kirstie has said to me in the past, is that really how you're going to hang out the towels? Now I know, I know she's not actually interested in how I hang up towels. She's just interested in how long I'm going to do it the wrong way. Like, is that, is that really how you're going to put the pillowcases, like like, the pillows into the pillowcases? Like, like, no, of course, this is not how I do it. Like, I'm totally going to do it the right way. Just, just, let me do it again, and I'll totally do it again. Like, Jesus' question here, we know by now, Jesus is always operating on more than one level. This, and he's definitely operating on a, a, another level here. No doubt, Jesus was talking about his legs, but it wasn't just his legs. It was also his heart. Jesus' question isn't just, do you want your legs back? But rather, do you want to know the one who can heal your legs? Do you know that he can also heal your heart? You see, the implication here is that if Jesus heals this man's leg, if Jesus heals this man's legs, this man will be forced to wonder who Jesus really is. If he heals him, he's going to be faced with that question healings in the Bible are never meant to point to themselves. They always point to the one who does the healing, just points to Jesus who does the healing. And I think the reason Jesus asked this man this question is because of the obvious decision that this man is going to have to face. If Jesus can cause him to walk, will he walk after Jesus? Will he use those new legs of his to follow the king? And the question is really meant to make us think about that same question for our own lives. It's actually the all-important question that each one of us needs to answer. Do we really want to be made well? Do we really want to be saved? All of us want eternal joy, the eternal blessing, the eternal wellness, the eternal forgiveness that is promised in Jesus. No one ever argues about that stuff. We want the kingdom but do we want the king? When faced with the reality of our sin, when faced with the, the, con- the reality of the consequences of sin, like if, if, we, if we actually were to see that, there's not a single person on earth who would turn down Jesus, turn down the offer of forgiveness. No, the real dilemma is, are we willing to call the one who forgives our king? Are we willing to... Not just let him be our saviour, but actually to let him be our king, to let him be the one in charge. Are we willing to call him saviour and Lord? Are we willing to hand over control? Are we willing to hand over permission to rule, the, the right to be in charge? Are we willing to hand that over to Jesus? Are we willing to let him just tell us by his word, this is how you spend your time. This is how you spend your money. This is what you should do with your body. This is what you should do with those relationships. Like, are you willing to let Jesus be king and say you need to forgive that person? Some of us are holding on to deep, deep unforgiveness. And if we feel somewhat justified in doing so, and forgiving that person would, would likely represent some kind of erosion of our identity. And yet Jesus calls us to forgive are we willing to let him be our king and obey him you see if jesus is not your king then neither is he your savior whether the man knows it or not he's just been asked the question of all questions and he responds by saying sir i have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. This man is all alone. And even if this superstition was completely real, even if there was an angel who was stirring up these waters, and even if the first person into that water was actually healed, even if all of that was true, this man, because he's completely alone, and he has no one to take him down to that pool, he is still without hope. We're meant to look at this story, we're meant to look at this man and go, wow, there's absolutely no hope for this guy. His physical situation, like our spiritual situation, before we know Jesus, is dire. And so Jesus does what we've come to expect of him. In verse 8 we read him saying, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. I wonder what kind of relief this man felt. 38 years sitting on that mat. As feelings started to end, he started to feel his toes for the first time. As his calf muscles and thigh muscles started to be strengthened, and he and he put weight on it and managed to stand up. Like, this must have been a dream come true. He must have been pinching himself thinking, is this real? Like just the just the relief. From that, from from that pain of not being able to walk, suddenly being relieved, like we, we know that feeling of relief, right? Like if you got a, if you got a scratch, an itch, and you just want to scratch it, and you're like, oh, you know, you, like, like, that's a, like that's like a that's a drop in the ocean compared to what this guy felt. A buddy of mine, he um, he he loves uh, getting brain freezes. It's really strange. He'll drink it'll get a slurpee and he'll drink the drink he'll chug the slurpee so that he gets the brain freeze so that he can feel the relief afterwards. It's weird, right? It's really strange. I've got some weird friends. But he's um, that's, that's, his, that's what he does and I can't understand it but like that, you know that feeling of relief when you, the brain freeze like that, that's a drop in the ocean compared to what this guy just felt like he is now able to walk he was not being able to walk for 38 years and now he can think about what he can do now so the man picks up his mat and he starts to walk but he also doesn't do something here that we might expect him to do he doesn't turn around and, and thank Jesus. It doesn't say that he goes away rejoicing. It doesn't say that he goes away telling others about the healing power in this man. And, and yes, Jesus slips away, but it, look, it just seems like he doesn't even stop to find out who it was that healed him. It, it looks like he just walked off. Now that stands out because so often we see the various responses to, to Jesus' uh, power in people's life. Like if we wind back the clock a bit for the last few weeks and we look at this woman of the world, how did she respond? She ran into town and told everybody about Jesus and they came out, they met him, they 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 stayed with he stayed with them and they came to believe. Or if we look at that royal official that we looked at last week, He, he went away and he believed and his whole household believed because of the healing power of Jesus. But this man just leaves. Now, now maybe there's nothing there, but maybe it's something. Now, I'm I'm pretty sure that there is something there. I don't think it's nothing, but let's just put a pin in that and we'll see if this develops even more. In verse 9, the plot thickens. It says, now that day was the Sabbath. And I think the way that John's written this is that's meant to take us by surprise there. That's a big deal. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. The law of Moses did prohibit anybody from working on the Sabbath. It was a day that had been set apart as holy for worship and gratitude in the Lord's provision. However, because of the exile and and their return from exile, they they wanted to make sure that they weren't going to break God's law again. And so they, they, they reinterpreted the law of Moses to include all these extra laws that they added onto it to really ensure that nobody was going to break it. And really, it was about keeping God in check. They made all these extra laws to really make sure that God was not going to punish them. Let's just keep God happy. And one of these major laws was the law of the Sabbath. And they interpreted this law like, okay, we know that it means not to work, but what constitutes work? And so they came up with this long list of all these things that constitute work, all these things that you weren't allowed to do, which included picking up your mat and walking, picking up your mat and carrying it. And the, the problem was that their extra interpretations and their extra additions to the law often made life difficult for others, but then benefited them as they interpreted them. And obedience to these extra additions to the law became the greatest indicator of faithfulness. The more you obeyed, the more faithful you were. And these men were far more concerned that their rules about the Sabbath had been broken than they were joyful about this man being able to walk. There's a strange evil in a heart that scolds the vulnerable for peripheral things like carrying a mat. The man replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Now to the Jews, this just will not do. It's one thing to pick up your mat and walk. But it's something else entirely, that there's another character out there, someone who was telling people to disobey the Sabbath. He's, he's inciting people to disobey the Sabbath, to, to pick up their mat and walk. M- miracle or not, this is bad. And historians will tell us that the tensions between the Jews and their the Roman occupiers at this point in time was really, really high. It was over bo- the, the, the pot was boiling over. And so any person who was perceived to be an insurrectionist who could threaten the, the delicate balance between, the, the, the fragile balance between the Jews and, and their Roman occupiers, this person had to be done away with. And so they asked the man, who is this man who told you pick up your mat and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. And it's at this point that we start to question this man's character. Wait, was was he about to throw Jesus under the bus? Was he about to dob him into the authorities? Jesus just healed him. He, He can now walk after 38 years. Was he about to just throw Jesus to the dogs? If Jesus' earlier question, when he asked the man, do you want to be made well, if that question wasn't just about his legs, but if that question was actually about his heart, then the answer here is getting pretty grim. And actually, I think that makes more sense of verse 14, which says, after this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see are well. Do not sin anymore, so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Now, we need to... Do a bit of thinking around that. What what Jesus means by that? There certainly are times in the Bible where sin is the cause of some physical tragedy, whether it's a sickness or some kind of uh, natural event. Then there are other times where no connection is made. And in fact, in John 9, where the disciples do make a connection between the man's blindness and potentially his sin or his parents' sin, Jesus severs that connection. No, no, there's no connection there, he says. See, I don't think that Jesus is saying here, mate, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to, be, you're going to end up back on that mat again. You're going to end up as a paraplegic again or, or something worse. Rather, I think Jesus here is talking about the bigger problem in this man's life. It seems as if Jesus is saying, see, I, I fixed your legs but there's still the issue of sin in your life. There's something that is far worse than sitting on a mat for 38 years. It's the eternal consequence of your sin. This is the second command that Jesus gives to the man. The first, man is, the first command is, pick up your mat and walk. The second command is, do not sin anymore. Jesus is instructing this man for life. I'm sure that if you asked that man that morning before he was healed, what's the biggest problem in your life? He would have said, well, it's this condition that I have. But here, Jesus frees this man from his physical bondage in order to point to him to a far more serious spiritual bondage. Spiritual bondage of our sin that has an eternal consequence. It's something a lot worse. And every single one of us has this sin problem. We were born under the curse of sin, and, we, uh, and as such we were enemies with God. Our biggest problem that we face is the sin that has separated us from God our Father. We have rebelled against Him. And it would be only just and fair for God to pour out His wrath upon us and give us that thing that is something worse. Our sin has racked up a debt that we cannot pay. And if we try and attempt to pay that on our own, we're going to make things worse. Spiritually, we are in a far worse position than this man was physically. We have failed. We have absolutely failed. But there is good news for failures like you and I. The good news is that Jesus Christ was killed on our behalf. He suffered our death. He suffered the, suffered the penalty that we were meant to pay. He took that, he wiped our, our slate clean. We have been forgiven of our sins. Our, our record of debt is gone. The Apostle Paul sums this up concisely in Colossians 2. He says, When you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He, that's God, made you alive with Him and forgave us all our trespasses. Like, just let those words ring in your ears for the rest of today, church. He has made you alive and forgiven us all all our trespassers. Most? No, all. The mild ones? No, all. Some of us know that we're forgiven for the little white lie and the the orange lie that was more like red. It's harder to admit that we've been forgiven for the things that we think are a lot worse, that we know are a lot worse. Is that what the Bible says? No. He forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He erased our certificate of debt. He, the, the debt that we've racked up, it's gone. Like Try and find it in God's logbooks. It's gone. Paid for by Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus means the erasure of our sin and therefore the elimination of any possibility that we would endure even a second of the wrath of God that we deserve. Jesus healed this man physically, but there was still the matter of spiritual healing. That's what, this, that's what I think Jesus is pointing to here. And so how is Jesus going to do this? Well, we read on in verse 15. Jesus has just found the man and said, don't go on sinning. The man, verse 15, the man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. I don't think we can say many positive things about this man's character. I don't think we're meant to. Like, I tried this week to, to find something good about this guy, but I just think that that's not the way that this has been written. Like, it's actually, he's just experienced probably the biggest and most wonderful blessing in his entire life and totally unprompted, he goes to the Jews to throw his healer under the bus and this is the ugly mirror that the Bible holds up for all of us to see. You see, we're not, we're, not, we're not meant to read this story and go, oh, what a poor guy. Or we're not meant to look at it and, and look down on him and disdain him for his sin. We're meant to look at it and go, that's exactly my heart too. That's exactly my heart too. We're meant to look at our own hearts and see that we are no different. See, Jesus didn't come to die for allies who would make great partners. He came to die for his enemies who he would make into God's children. How does Jesus do this? How does he take his enemies? How, do, how could he take a man like this? He would throw him under the bus. How could he make him one of God's children? Well, we simply need to read the next verse. The Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing all these things on the Sabbath. And then Jesus responded to them, and we're going to go into verse 17 and 18 here, and we're going to overlap this with next week. We'll look at this passage again, these last couple of verses again next week. Jesus responded to them, My Father is still working, and I am working also. It's interesting here about Jesus' response that he doesn't point out to them their flawed understanding of the Sabbath. He doesn't defend himself that way. He doesn't say, listen, you've you've misunderstood the Sabbath. Nor does he say, hey, your hearts are totally in the wrong place. Um, How how terrible are your hearts for thinking this way when this man just got healed? And there are other times where Jesus does this. Like if you go to Matthew 12, the the disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath and and the, the Pharisees get very upset about this and Jesus corrects their misunderstanding of the Sabbath and then He just kind of like pokes the hornet's nest a little bit more and heals a man on the Sabbath and they get their knickers in a knot and he says, your hearts are in the wrong place. That's what Jesus does in Matthew 12. He doesn't do that here though. He doesn't point to their misunderstanding of the Sabbath. He doesn't point to their their faulty hearts. He responds to them saying, my father is still working and I am working also. And I just want to pay attention to the fact, I just want to pay attention to the, to the thing that these Jews paid attention to, that Jesus called God my Father. He's, he's poking the hornet's nest. He's poking the bear. Jesus knew, they knew, the Jews knew exactly what this meant. They knew exactly what this meant. This isn't cryptic. it's explained in verse 18. This is why the Jews, listen to this, began trying all the more to kill him. Not only, Was he breaking the Sabbath? But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus' response, his his defense can hardly be called a defense. Like he's gone and just poked the bear. He's gone and he's like tugging on the lion's tail there. And what is the consequence? They try to kill him all the more. They want to kill him. He's just made himself equal with God. Prior to chapter 5, there was hesitation, there was apprehension about Jesus. Now here, they want to kill him. If, if Jesus had said something different, then it might have just been persecution that he was enduring. now, his life is threatened. He, by, making, by calling God his Father and making himself equal with God, he was ensuring that one day his cross would come. The question I think that we need to be asking here is, Whose fault is it that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus? Like who pushed over the first domino here that led to Jesus' death? Was it this man who Jesus healed and then who threw Jesus to the dogs? Or was it Jesus who said these words that incited their, uh, incited their, their desire to kill him? Was it this man or was it Jesus? I think the answer is yes. I think it's both. And both options here have incredible ramifications for us. Because if the man is the cause, it means that the only chance that he had at being saved from his sins was if he reported Jesus to the authorities. Put it this way. Someone said this to me many years ago, and it's always stuck with me those soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross, the only way they had a chance at being saved from their sin of nailing Jesus to the cross was by nailing Jesus to the cross. The only way this man had any chance of being healed from his sin, of disregarding the goodness and and the power of his Saviour, was if he first Disregarded the the goodness because it led to Jesus' death. Does this make his sin excusable? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It simply tells us that where we sin, his grace is greater. I read a prayer this week from George Herbert. He prayed this Where we had sinned beyond any help in heaven or earth, Then you said, and he's talking to Jesus, Lo, I come. Then did the Lord of life, unable of himself to die, contrive to do it. He took flesh. He wept. He died. For his enemies, he died. Even for those that derided him then and still despise him. Friends, if you're here and you're not a believer, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're here and you disregard Christianity, if you think it's all a load of nonsense, know this, Jesus wants to forgive you. He desires to forgive you. But if Jesus is the cause here, if Jesus is the one who knocks over the first domino, then it tells us that Jesus came to die for this man and all of his enemies, including us. Like, think about it. Jesus could have avoided death, if you wanted to hear. Like, Jesus could have healed this man the next day. I mean, it's been 38 years. What's one more day? He could have come back the next day, healed this man, shown his, displayed his compassion, and then moved on. Nobody would have. Like, this, this whole scenario wouldn't have happened. But he, he didn't. He healed on the Sabbath. Jesus could have avoided death if he healed the man and said, off you go, but leave your mat here. Because if, he if the guy had walked off, he likely would not have been noticed by the Jews. But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, hey, guy, don't, don't forget your mat. I want you to stand out. Jesus could have avoided this, this domino trail that would lead to his death here if he didn't find the man again. He had slipped off, the guy had left, Jesus could have just gone somewhere else and they wouldn't have known who it was. But he he goes and finds the man. The man doesn't find him, Jesus finds the man. And when they come to accuse him of of doing these things on the Sabbath, he's the one who says, hey, my father is still working, so I'm going to keep working as well. And he just (laughs) infuriates them. He could have avoided death if he just didn't equate himself with his father. But he did all of those things to guarantee the cross. Why? It was his great love for us, his enemies, that he died for us. Jesus died for people like you and I who would rather throw Jesus to the dogs than find ourselves on the wrong side of the cultural authorities. George Herbert goes on in the prayer. He says, blessed Savior, many waters could not quench your love, nor no pit overwhelm it. But though the streams of your blood were coursing through darkness, grave and hell, yet by these your afflictions and seemingly hazards did you arise triumphant, and therein made us victorious. Friends, are you familiar with the love of God for you? Are you familiar with the God of mercy who sent his son to die for us as proof of his great love for you? Is there reluctance in your heart to receive that love? Is there reluctance in your heart? Like are you so bold as to say, God, I I, I read this, but I, I think I still have to deny your love. Friends, receive the love of God. You might think, no, I've done too much. No, friend, that's the point. We're we're meant to look at our sin. We are meant to, like, I'm not here to say, hey, it's everything's okay. You know, you're not that bad of a sinner. God loves you because you're, you're pretty good. You almost made it. He finished the job. It's all good. No, we're meant to look at our sin. We're meant to see the depravity of our hearts. And, and this is so crucial, we have to look beyond it. We have to look beyond it to the love of God in our, for us in our sin, in, in the depth of that valley. That's where Jesus loves us dearly. Receive the love of God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others